right, good morning, everybody. Just a couple of quick things that I want to mention before we jump into the beginning of our brand new series. First of all, if you haven't gotten the opportunity to join us on Wednesday nights at 6.30 right here in this room for the furnace, I want to encourage you to come out for the furnace. It's worship, it's prayer, we're ministering to people every Wednesday night. It's been fantastic, a great atmosphere of the presence of the Holy Spirit here. So we want to encourage you, come if you need prayer. If you have relatives or friends that need prayer, uh, we're praying for people every Wednesday night, so invite them out. Secondly, to all of our men, we are doing a special preview event for men's ministry this coming Saturday night, right after the Saturday evening service. Uh, it's going to be at Bill Britton's house. We're doing a bonfire and corn boil. And I'll be talking to the men and sharing all the great things that are coming up this year that we have planned. So you're going to want to be there for that. So there are these little square cards available out in the lobby on the information desk. And make sure you pick one up, guys. That has all the information, the address to Bill's house and all that stuff. We'd love to have you out next Saturday night. And then finally, how many of you would like to know what we took in last weekend in our Kingdom Builders offering. Okay, I will tell a couple of you privately afterwards. How many of you want to hear what we took in? That's better. That's what I was looking for. Here's the number. Last weekend, you gave $45,133. Congratulate yourself. That is awesome. That is absolutely amazing. And let me tell you why it's so amazing. Because I've talked before about the power of we, of what happens when everybody does something. Now look at a month ago or so, I threw out this big, audacious number of $50,000. It was just in my spirit, $50,000. But I would tell you on the backside of that, I also told our staff that there's no way that we'll even get close to that without some people giving some large gifts. Like, we need someone to give a 10, someone to give a 15, and things like that. Do you realize we reached that over $45,000 mark with no gift that was more than $2,000. That means, yeah, that means that this was a we. See, sometimes we come and say, well, what good will my little bit do? Well, if everybody just does what the Holy Spirit tells them to do and gives their little bit, when you add it all up, it adds up to $45,000 plus. That's the power of the we. I am so, so, so proud of you guys. And it also tells us something else, that everybody is buying in to the vision and the things that we're doing. And I'm going to tell you, when people buy in, God buys in. He says, okay, you've done your part, now watch me work. And I'm telling you, it is going to be amazing. So if you weren't here last weekend, you didn't get a chance to give in that Kingdom Builders offering, guess what? You can still give. We'll still take your offering, okay? We will. Seriously, we'll take it. You know, fill out an offering envelope, stick it in the late offering slot out by the coffee machines there, and who knows, before this weekend is over, there may be some people that weren't here last weekend, and we may still hit the $50,000 mark, but I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled um, with that offering from last weekend. So congratulations to all of you. Way to go. All right, so this morning I want to begin our series called God Behaving Badly. It's a really odd title for a series, isn't it? Because we don't typically think 
of God's name in the same sentence as the word behaving badly, right? Because God never behaves badly. He's God, right? Well, I want to talk about some of the times in Scripture where it seems like God is behaving badly because what he's doing is in direct opposition to our idea or concept of God that he is loving, that he is kind, that he is peaceful, that he is good. And so there are questions that people have about God when they read the scriptures that really disturb them, really baffle them. People outside of the four walls, people that are trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And because they can't get answers to those questions, those questions become a stumbling block to them that prevent them from pursuing relationship with God. So that's why I'm doing this series, for them and for you, so that you will have answers to give to people. Because here's a lot of times what we do in Christianity. When we are uncomfortable about something that's in the Bible, we go around it. We ignore it. We skip it. We pretend it doesn't exist. But you can't do that. We can't do that. The Bible says that we're supposed to give an answer for our faith, right? Will you say amen with me? So today, I'm going to begin this series by tackling this question. Is God loving and peaceful, or is he angry and violent? So uh, there are three scriptures that we're going to look at today. The first one, if you want to turn there, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read this story, and then we're going to go to two other places in the scripture, and we're going to build a case where it seems that this God of the universe is behaving awfully badly, all right? Are you at 2 Samuel chapter 6? It says, then David gathered all the elite troops together in Israel. There were about 30,000 in all. And he led them to Baalah of Judah to bring back the Ark of God. So in other words, they're bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Which bears the name, the Lord of Heaven's armies, which is enthroned between the cherubim. And so they brought placed the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from Abinadab's house which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of the Lord. Okay, so far so good. Ahio walked in front of the ark and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They were singing songs. They were playing all kinds of musical instruments. They were playing larps and hires. They had the tambourines out. They even had the castanets out, it says. And they were clanging cymbals. So I want to stop there for a moment. You have to understand the context of this. The ark is coming back to Jerusalem. It has been gone a long time. And so people are celebrating because the ark represents what? The presence and the power of God, right? And so they are reveling, they are singing, they are shouting, all the instruments are going. This is an amazing, amazing celebration, right? Pick it up, verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor, the oxen stumbled. In other words, the oxen tripped. And Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. And so Uzzah died right there beside the ark. What? What's up with that? They're, they're, they're having a celebration. 
I mean, how many of you would have done the same thing that Uzzah did? You don't want the Ark of the Covenant falling off the cart, right? We all would have probably done that, right? Wasn't Uzzah doing a good thing? Would we agree? Yeah. So what's up with that? Now I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. And we're coming in at the end of this story. And we're just going to read one single verse. It says in 2 Kings 19, 35, That night the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed, slaughtered, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And when the Assyrian soldiers woke up, it says, the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Can you imagine waking up tomorrow morning and finding corpses everywhere in your neighborhood? It's like, what's up with that? That's pretty violent. That, that, that's pretty excessive, don't you think? But my favorite is Psalm 137, verse 9. And this is one of the verses in Scripture that really disturbs people about God. Psalm 137, verse 9 says this. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Ouch. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, it's hard to escape the fact that God gets angry. And it's hard to escape the fact that God kills people in the Old Testament. So what happens to people that are looking at or reading the Bible from the outside, even sometimes some of us Christians reading it from the inside, is that people on the outside looking in at this assume that God is like the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, the Terminator. All right? So you know the Terminator is, right? The guy with the big gun, I'll be back, right? That God is in heaven with his big gun and he's just wreaking judgment and havoc on people at will. He's the terminator, right? This is the idea that people have about God. But is that true? It's not true. We know that, but here's the problem. We don't know how to explain that. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to explain what in the world is going on in these passages that we've just read. So to do that, I want to make a couple of observations first. All right, these are important. Observation number one. Any system of interpretation that creates a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is absolutely 100% wrong. Why do I tell you that? Because there are people out there that believe and teach that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. That is not true. There are not two gods in your Bible. And yet some people make God schizophrenic. Where in the Old Testament, God is a God of judgment and fire. And then in the New Testament, all of a sudden he becomes a God of love and grace right? You've probably heard people teach that. False, wrong, not true. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that God is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. That's right. So that can't be true. So we've got to figure out what's going on. Observation number two. 
We have to look at biblical texts in their cultural and historical context or we will always misread the Bible and misunderstand who God is. You've got to read the Bible in its cultural and historical context. And see, this is what most people do. And if you attend Life Church School of the Bible, this is what you will learn to do in my class. When I teach how to read, study, and interpret the Bible, I'll teach you how to do this stuff. You say, well, has that ever happened where people have misread? And Oh, absolutely, it happens all the time in history. In fact, for hundreds of years, preachers, not only in America, but in Great Britain, misinterpreted and abused the Bible to validate the institution of slavery. They said that the Bible said that slavery was okay. They said that the Bible condoned slavery. You know what? I could make the Bible say whatever I want it to say if I don't preach it or read it or teach it in context. And you could do the same thing as well. That's called proof texting. Then there's another scripture that people typically abuse. And it's one that men of church leaders have abused. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. It says, women should be silent in the church. They should not speak. Boy, I bet you've heard a bunch of different interpretations on that that are wild. But why did they abuse that? Because they wanted to keep women from leading and having a voice in the church. Now, what's going on there? What's, what's the situation? What's the cultural, historical context when Paul issues that edict? I mean, Paul, Paul had to have a reason for saying that, right? So when you're reading something you don't understand, ask the question, why? Well, the answer to the question is a simple logistics one. In that time period, because of Jesus, this is amazing, women, Christian women, were allowed to read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, okay, Jewish scripture, they were allowed to read the Torah for the very first time. Jesus opened that door. Do you know that Jewish women were not allowed to read the Bible? They were not allowed to read Torah. So they're all excited, but because they're reading it for the first time, guess what they have? Lots of questions. And what you also need to understand is not only do they have questions, but in the culture of that day, the Christians are still maintaining many of the Jewish traditions. They are going early on to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, it was tradition that men sat on one side and women sat on the other side. Now, you combine that with women having all kinds of questions, what is happening in the church is that women are whispering across the aisles in the middle of the service asking their husbands questions. Now, if we had this section of people that had just gotten the Bible for the first time and they're looking at it, and we have this section and they're continuously whispering over to these people saying, hey, do you know what does this mean, right? What would eventually happen to our services? They would be chaotic, they would get disrupted. That's the problem that Paul is addressing. It's simple logistics. In the church, women keep silent. In other words, hold your questions, and he even answers the issue. But nobody goes on to read verse 35, where Paul says to the women, wait until you get home to ask your husbands. It's right there in the text, but we don't read, okay? So that's the second observation. Observation number three. The Bible contains passages of violence because the Bible never hides the ugly truth about people's lives and circumstances. 
It is very unique in that way. The Bible never whitewashes the truth to make humanity or humans or even Bible characters look good. That's important for us to know because in ancient Near East civilizations, it was a very common practice. In fact, 100% of the time to always make kings and empires look good. So what did they do? They removed anything that was bad. So a king's losses, an empire's losses were never recorded in their history books, only their victories. This is why when the story of the Red Sea and the Israelites crossing it is told, and historians say, well, there's no evidence in the Egyptian record that the Egyptian army was ever defeated by the Hebrews. Of course there wasn't, because they whitewashed their histories. They only wrote about their victories in the same way Kings and empires never recorded any of the dirt that happened in their reigns. But the Bible is different. It records all of those things. The good, the bad, the ugly. So in David's life, we not only get recorded his great victory over Goliath and other armies, but the Bible also tells us that he was an adulterer and a murderer and that he wasn't a very good father. See, the whole story gets told. The Bible records it all. But here's what you need to know. In recording all of those events or actions or statements, the Bible is not condoning those events or actions or statements. It's merely recording them. All right? It's merely recording them. So now, let's go to one of those texts that we read about. Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. When you read that verse, you need to ask this question. Who's speaking? Because from an outside perspective, when the world reads that verse, who do they attribute that verse to? They attribute it to God. But is it God that's speaking in that verse? No, well, if it's not God speaking, that changes everything. This psalm is recording the raw emotions and anger of revenge of the psalmist who had been carried into the Babylonian captivity. So to get that, to understand this one verse, you have to read all of Psalm 137 in context. Verse 1 gives us a clue. Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat, and we wept as we thought of and we remembered Jerusalem. So what's happening here is the psalmist was grieving the fact that the temple, the most important building in all of Judaism, it housed God's presence at that time, had been destroyed. The Jewish people had been murdered. And Jerusalem literally had been burned to the ground by the Babylonians. And so in his humanity, he wants what? revenge he wants the same thing to happen to the babylonians as the babylonians have done to the jews and so this is called a plaintive psalm it's a psalm of grief of anguish of deep sorrow crying out now let me ask you a question this morning have you ever felt that way and said something similar about one of your enemies somebody ripped you off somebody did you bad have you ever had thoughts like that? Get them, God, right? I hope their teeth fall out, their ears fall off. You know, whatever. I have. 
I'll admit to you, I have, right? The Bible is not condoning the psalmist's actions. What it's doing is showing the psalmist raw emotions and the ugliness of humanity to point out to us how much we really need God. Right? How many of you need God this morning? I need God because when people do me wrong, I struggle. Right? And you do as well. That verse is not telling us to dash children against the rocks. Does that make sense to everybody? So you've got to ask the question, who's saying that? Why are they saying it? What might be their motive? But the Bible's not condoning it. It's the psalmist. And finally, observation number four is that the Old Testament contains violence because the civilization of that day was extremely violent. We're going to talk more about this in a moment, but the better description would be this. Old Testament civilization was barbaric. It was an anything-goes, wild, wild west society without laws. You have to understand that. When you understand that, it helps you to understand why God had to do certain things in the Old Testament that would seem very strange to us today in our culture, all right? So keep those things in mind, and now let's take a look at these passages. The first question I want to answer is, is God angry or is God loving? Now, that very question, I want to tell you this morning, is a bad one because it sets up a false dichotomy. It assumes that a person, or in this case, God, cannot be angry and loving at the same time. It makes those things mutually exclusive. But let me ask you, can someone be both angry and loving? Absolutely. It's important to distinguish between a display of righteous anger and a person who has an anger problem. They're always losing their temper. They're always flying off the handle, right? So, does God get angry? Yes. We see God get angry not only in the Old Testament, he gets angry in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus walks into the temple and there are the money changers ripping people off? Jesus got angry. But here's the key. It was a righteous anger. Right? Do you see the difference? So whenever we see God getting angry, here's what we need to do. We need to ask the question, why is God angry? Why? What's the source of that anger? Now, even as I say that, some of you are sitting here and go, yeah, but, but, but Uzziah didn't do anything wrong. I don't get why God was angry with him. Like, I could see sometimes where God in his righteous anger, but what about Uzziah? The poor guy's just trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling off the cart. God's behavior in that story seems a bit excessive. Well, let's talk about that. First, you need to know that God gave the Israelites very clear instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported, how it was to be carried. It was to be carried by priests using poles through these rings on the side of the Ark, okay? And they were to carry it on their shoulders. Now, that instruction is not found once, twice, three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times, or even eight times. It is found over ten times in the Scripture. Why would God mention this ten times? Why is God so concerned about how the ark might be carried? Is God a little OCD? I mean, does it really matter? Let's just carry the ark, people, right? Why is God so worried about this? Well, let me give you an analogy to show you why. 
if people don't use precaution when transporting plutonium, which is used in nuclear devices, do you know what happens? People die. Yeah, it's a real simple equation. So that's why the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has detailed guidelines about how plutonium has to be transported. How many of you are glad for those guidelines? Aren't you glad that they have those guidelines? I mean, there is a specific, detailed way that plutonium must be carried. You should be glad for that. Because I don't want some scientists walking around with plutonium in a, in a paper sack, right? I don't want it in his trunk. Oh, yeah, we got to take this over there. I'm just going to throw this in my trunk, you know? We would all die. In the same way, you have to understand, handling the ark was dangerous. Why? Because it contained the presence and the power of God. So here's the one thing that they get right in the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Do you remember at the end when the Germans, the goofy Germans, decide they're going to open the lid of the ark? Do you remember that scene? What happens? All of a sudden, this light comes out of this ark. The power comes out of the ark, and it fries all of them. I mean, it blows their eyeballs out. It melts their heads and their bodies. That is true. Because it's the power of God, all right? That's what God is trying to prevent from happening with the Jewish people. He gives the guidelines of how to carry it to prevent death. Now, I would call that loving. If God wasn't loving, he'd let them learn by trial and error, right? Oh, yeah, a bunch of you died. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. That was really dumb. I, I, I should have probably told you not to do that, right? No, God is loving, that's why he gives us guidelines. So it still doesn't answer the question, though, why did Uzziah die? Well, the text tells us that day that all of Israel was watching these proceedings. So there's this huge crowd there. And we know that they are disobeying God because they are not carrying the ark properly. Therefore, with everyone watching, God could not allow, get this, the Israelites to think, that obedience to him was optional. That they could do things their way instead of his way. And so that's why God allowed Uzzah to die. Because it was very clear that anyone that touched the ark would die, right? So God really didn't do it to Uzzah. Uzzah did it to himself. The ark represented the presence. Second reason for God's anger was because they were transported, the way that they were transporting the ark was insulting. In that day, the way that a king was carried around or transported was on a litter. What was a litter? It was a throne that sat on a flat board carried by these buff-looking guys with poles, right? You've seen them carrying around the Egyptian pharaohs that way, right? If you haven't, just watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? That's the way they did it. Carts were meant for things. So, when they decide to put the ark on a cart, that was the equivalent of them putting God in the trunk of their car. It's like you putting God in the trunk of your car. That's what the Philistines did. They transported the ark of the covenant on a cart. They did it that way for a reason. They wanted to insult the Israelites. 
They wanted to demean, degrade their God. And now the Israelites are doing it. This does not make God happy. The third reason God was angry was because their lack of respect for the way they handled the ark demonstrated that the relationship they had with him wasn't that important. And so God allows Uzzah to die to communicate that the relationship is important, that disrespect can't be tolerated. You see, God always has a reason for why he gets angry. It's either to protect people, to protect his honor, the honor of others, or relationship. I mean, would you want to follow a God that wasn't passionate about his relationship with you and seeing that justice and honor prevailed? So now let's go to the next story. The 185,000 Assyrians that are killed. By the way, God doesn't get angry because he's fickle. You don't serve a fickle God. You don't serve a God that's in heaven today on this Labor Day weekend going, oh, I'm so bored. Oh, I think I'll kill 185,000 Assyrians today. That might be wonderful, right? We don't serve a God like that. So why did God kill these Assyrians? Reason number one, they were killed in the context of war. Remember, we said that you have to interpret these scriptures in their, con- in their context, their biblical and cultural context. So, what's happening in this story? The Assyrian soldiers are attacking Jerusalem. First of all, never a good idea to attack Jerusalem, God's beloved city, right? They were the aggressors. They were threatening to destroy the Jews. In fact, they had already killed a bunch of them. God doesn't take kindly to his people being killed, whether it's the Jews thousands of years ago or whether it's you or I. So he was acting defensively to protect his people. Reason number two, Assyria was a brutally violent nation. Now, unless you do historical digging, you won't know that, but most historians know that the Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal regimes to have ever walked the face of the planet. They routinely bragged about burning, mutilating, and hanging their victims, including boys, young boys and girls. In fact, one of their favorite practices was to cut off the heads of their victims, their enemies, and impale their heads on the city gates so that everyone could see it. It was a warning. Don't mess with us. So at any given time, when they took over a city, there would be hundreds and hundreds of heads stuck on the city gates. Nice people, huh? They were barbaric in their treatment of people. Reason number three is that in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 through 13, the king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, begins to mock God, and he literally shakes his fist at the heavens and calls God out. If you don't remember anything else from this message, remember this, don't ever call God out. He may just answer you, right? He tells the Israelites, hey, All of the gods of those other nations that we have defeated, they couldn't save them. And your God isn't going to save you either because your God is a wimp and I am all powerful. And then he raises his fist in hand and he says, God, I defy you. The God of the Jews, I defy you to defeat me for I am all powerful. So when God walks into the camp that night and wipes out 185,000 of his guys, All God is doing is giving Sennacherib exactly what he asked for. He's showing him how powerful he is. 
So the question comes back, is God really an angry God? Because here's what the scripture says about God's character. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we read this. God is slow to anger. Would you agree? Here are a few examples. Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, Nahum 1, 3, Psalm 86, 15, 103, 8, and 145, 8. And I could go on and on and on where it says that God is slow to anger. That's his nature. Now compare that to many of us and people in our world where anger is a daily occurrence. Our wrath comes quickly, easy, swift, right? We're always flying off the handle. But that's not God. The Old Testament talks about God's patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, his love. In fact, there's even a Hebrew word for it. Tessid. It means a steadfast, devoted love and mercy. God is always abounding in gracious and love, and gracious love towards us. God never stops loving us. So when you examine the stories in the Old Testament, you will discover that God never, ever, ever acts impulsively with his judgment or anger, even though at a casual reading, without looking beneath the surface, it may appear that way. God only acts after giving multiple warnings and opportunities to change. And God exercises, believe it or not, as much mercy and love and grace in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. Now, does God get angry and eventually have to deal with people's disobedience and sin? Yes, but only after multiple chances to change. So we can look at the Canaanites. We can look at the Egyptians. We can ask the question, well, did God love them? The answer is yes. Well, then why did God drown the Egyptian army in the Red Sea? Why did he tell Israel to go in and destroy every last Canaanite? Well, in both of these cases, those people were oppressing and enslaving others. They were bullying and torturing people. And the Canaanites and the Egyptians were not Boy Scouts. In fact, according to Harvard scholar Ernst Wright, they were sadistic beasts who burned babies alive and engaged in corporate rape and murder. But even with all of that, God gave them, you want to know how many years before he judged them? 400 years each. I'd say that's pretty long suffering, right? 400 years. God tried diplomacy. He sends Moses to Pharaoh how many times? 10 times to say, let my people go. Talk about chances. That's because God doesn't show favoritism. He loves and cares about all people. Say, well, how do you know that? Isaiah 15, 5, Isaiah 16, 9 shows that even though the Moabites, who were utterly evil, they were sacrificing their children to the god Molech, they were utterly evil, but it says in those verses that God showed compassion on them. In Isaiah 19, 25, it tells us that even though the Assyrians and the Egyptians oppressed the Jews, God still referred to the Assyrians as my people, to the Egyptians as my people. So God is loving, God is not angry. Question number two, is God peaceful or is God violent? And to answer that question, we need to ask this. Are God's ways in the Old Testament just? Because this is really the problem that most people have when they read some of these stories. They say that's not what? Fair. It's not just. Well, remember I talked about how violent ancient civilizations were. They were barbaric. 
And what you need to know is that many of the laws that God enacted in the Old Testament that seemed harsh to us were done because the cultures were so brutal. The world that we're living in today is a far cry from that day. And what you need to understand is because of the laws that don't make sense to some of us today, because God instituted those laws, we have a civilized world, quote unquote, today. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19 through 20 says this. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given back to him. Now, many people in our world today read that and say, that's harsh. But that principle is called the law of exact equivalence. Why is it important for you and I? Because many people turn to the words of Jesus and they said there are contradictions in the Bible. In the Old Testament it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in the New Testament Jesus says to turn the other cheek and they get confused. So what was that law all about? Why? How do we make sense of it? Well, you have to understand that when God issued the law, an eye for an eye, it was a huge step forward for the culture of that day because it was lawless. So Old Testament scholar David Baker writes, the societal benefits of this one law limited vengeance and ruled out punishments that were disproportionate to the offense. Let me give you an example. It went like this in the Old Testament. If you killed my cow accidentally, I would come over to your house and I'd kill your wife and all your children because there were no laws. It was barbaric. I did whatever I wanted to do. So when God says, look it, if they got your cow, the only thing that you can take from them is a cow. This is revolutionary justice that starts to change civilization, that starts to bring about some civility. Does everybody understand that? All right? God's laws help people live together peacefully. But here's the thing. There is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament because society is evolving and changing. So in the Old Testament, it's an eye for an eye. In the New Testament, what is Jesus doing? He's trying to progress civilization further. And he said, you have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I'm telling you this, turn the other cheek. He's saying, I'm elevating the stakes even higher. All right? It's no good just to take the same thing. Why don't you just learn to turn the other cheek? Do you see how civilization... God is trying to progress civilization out of this lawless, barbaric state. It's not a contradiction at all. Most of you don't realize that in those days, there were no courts, there were no judges. If somebody did you wrong, you couldn't sue them. There were no lawyers, there were no trials, okay? So some of the violent sentences that we read about in the Old Testament for violent crimes were done because it deterred violence. It made the world a safer place. For example, rape and kidnapping were punished by death. We say, oh, that's, that's severe. Well, it deterred violence and rape against women and defenseless children. It kept them safer because there were no laws. Now, when you look at it in that historical context, then God is what? Is he mean or is he loving? That's a loving thing to do. 
And so while there are all these stories in the Old Testament of violence and punishment, I want you to know there are more stories that demonstrate that God is a God of peace. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 24, the armies of Israel are surrounded by the Syrian armies. They are outnumbered. They don't have a chance. And all of a sudden, Elisha the prophet begins to pray. And as he prays, God blinds the eyes of the Syrians. Now they're defenseless. And in their defenseless state, the king of Israel says to Elisha, shall we go in and just cut their heads off? So we massacre them. And you know what Elisha replies? No. Instead, he instructs them to set bread and water before the Syrians and to prepare a feast for them. Wait a minute, this is their enemies, right? Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. Proverbs is in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That doesn't sound like an angry, mean God. God also, in the Old Testament, shows mercy on one of the most wickedest cities ever, Nineveh. Do you remember that whole story? Jonah is told by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't want to take the good news because Jonah wants them destroyed. He hates the Ninevites. So he refuses to go, and he runs away, and he gets on board a ship, and he gets tossed off the ship, and he ends up in the belly of a great fish. You all remember that story, right? But what happens in the end? Jonah obeys God. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the good news. And what happens to the Ninevites? They repent, and God forgives them. And Jonah's like, rats. He probably said something else, but... It's Sunday morning and we're in church, so I can't say that, right? Yeah, he's upset. He's so upset that he wants to kill himself. But God's mercy. You see, God is a God of love and mercy. He desires for all people to come to him, to have relationship with him. His desire is for peace, not violence. Now, I know that God's responses in the Old Testament bother people at times because they seem extreme. It's because we don't understand the historical and the cultural context. And no one wants people to die. God doesn't want people to die. But here's an unpopular truth that I need to point out to you this morning. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's the same truth. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. One of the reasons that we're shocked with stories like that of Uzzah is because today when people sin, we don't die instantly. Can you say amen to that? Right? Or you'd be crawling over people on your way to get lunch this afternoon. So when it happens in the Old Testament, it seems like it's unfair, like it's out of place because we're reading it from our mindset today. So why don't more people die instantly if the punishment for sin is death? It's because God is loving and gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And he often delays punishment, hoping what? That we'll change, that we'll repent, that we'll come to him. But here's what happens, unfortunately. Because God delays, instead of his delay reminding us of his love and the fact that he's slow to anger and he's giving us a chance, we as human beings take his delay for granted, his grace for granted, and we keep on sinning because we think, ah, he hasn't done anything. I guess it's okay. I guess I can get away with it. 
we won't get away with anything. Eventually, there's a day of reckoning, but God is being merciful and gracious. I don't understand or even claim to understand everything that God does, but hopefully today you've gained a little bit better understanding of this issue of love versus anger, violence versus peace related to God in the Old Testament. Does the, uh, the God of the Old Testament get angry? Yes, he does. Is the God of the Old Testament loving? Yes, he is. Does the God of the New Testament get angry? Yes, he does. Is the God of the New Testament loving? Yes, he is. You see, anger and love are not mutually exclusive because when you love someone, you get angry when you see them being hurt and abused, right? So if you were to go out of here today and you were to see your spouse or your children or your grandchildren get abused or hurt by someone, would you get angry? Absolutely. You would be righteously angry. When you love people, you get angry when you see an injustice being committed against them. And it's the same with God. When God sees injustice in our world, he gets angry. Why? Because this is the world he created for people. God gets angry when he sees people being mistreated and uncared for. And when he sees people making choices that destroy the beautiful life that he gave them. Because this is not what he created us for. He sent Jesus so that we could step into the abundant life again that he created us for but was marred by sin. So friends, God is not loving or God is not angry. He is loving and he is not violent. He is peaceful. Although he gets accused by the world of being angry and violent. It's not true. And now you understand how to answer those questions for people, I pray. Because I guarantee you, people that you work with, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, people that you will come across, these are the questions that they're struggling with that prevent them from having a relationship with God. And God wants you to not just say to them, well, God is loving, God is peaceful, but to be able to back up those answers by showing them what was actually happening in those passages. Would you bow your heads this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I want to close the service by asking you a question. Whether you're watching online today, whether you're here in the sanctuary, God is slow to anger. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's loving is what the Bible says. But I want to ask you a question. Is there an area of your life that you can identify this morning or that the Holy Spirit is identifying where you have not been obeying him and he's being very patient with you. In other words, is there some kind of regular sinful act that you're involved in? A willful, deliberate choice on your part. You know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about it. But you've just been blowing past all the red lights, all the stop lines, just doing it your own way. And God is waiting. And he hasn't sent a lightning bolt out of heaven to strike you down. He's not cursed your life. But he's waiting in his long-suffering patience for you to change for you to come into alignment with his word. Why? Because there is so much more he has for you. There is so many ways in which he wants to bless you, but that blessing is being stopped. 
Can I encourage you in light of this message today to make a decision to obey him in whatever area that is? I think we all have those areas. Areas where it's difficult for us to obey God. Areas where we're just being willfully disobedient. We know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. I'm saying do it. Make the decision today. Stop ignoring God. Don't take His grace and His love for granted because eventually there will be consequences to that. So change while you can. Change while His grace is in play. That's what I'm challenging you to today. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Look at, I can't change on my own. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I don't have the ability. But that's why you have the Holy Spirit in your life. He will help you if you call upon Him, if you lean on Him. Do it today.